Hi and welcome to The Crime Pod. I'm Sam. And I'm Caitlin. So thank you for bearing with us. That's us back our holidays. Um, And before we begin, I'd just like to say thank you to our listener who commented informing us that I spelt Nikki's name wrong at the beginning on our intro. Apologies for that and and thank you obviously for letting us know. I should have proofread but clearly I didn't. I was on holiday mode but we do appreciate you letting us all know like that's what we need. I would say. Um, yeah, no, exactly. Keeping us right. Definitely. Um, yeah, so this week we are doing something a bit different. Uh, we are actually going to do an American episode because we have people that listen to us in America, which is very weird to say. Um, but we're going to do a kind of small case each on an American episode for Independence Day, isn't it? Fourth of July? Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. This week we're in America. Um, before uh, we do the usual thing, Caitlin, do you know when the declaration, decla- can't even say the word. Yeah, good. Declaration of Independence was signed. Oh. Could be a trick question. Like we are, it's the 4th of July, remember? It could be a trick question. Yeah. It, it's not been signed. <laughs> no. So I think it all right. started... It all started know, that's on, like, the 1st of July, but when was it signed? Like year or day? The day. Or year, if you can tell me the year. The 3rd of July. And what year was that? 1843. You were close. So I think it was about the 2nd or 3rd of July. It was signed by a few people and it was 1776. Oh, do you know um, I was going to go yeah. 17 and I thought that I bet you it's like 19 something and I'm just looking like I write it so that's why I didn't yeah well don't worry you went in between you went for 18 <laughs> um do you know where it was signed America at the bottom of the page <laughs> do you not get it I get it yeah thought so anyway right ignore that <clears throat> Sorry, I just thought I'd let you know. Now, I will begin my story first. Um, What I'll do is, the reason I've chosen this one is it actually got me into true crime podcasts, believe it or not. Um, In 2020, my pal Nat was like, oh, I've found this podcast, Samantha, you'll really like it. I gave it a listen. And then I think it was like only about 20 episodes in, I heard this one and I was like, holy shit, that is crazy. So I thought I would share it with all of you. And I don't know, Caitlin, if you've heard of this one either, um, but this is the story of Mary okay. Vincent. Have you heard of her? I think I have, because I think you've told me about it. Yeah, probably have. Yeah, but I'm looking forward to hearing it again. Yeah, good. Okay, well, I will begin. On the 29th of September, 1978, 15-year-old Mary Vincent was hitchhiking in Berkeley, California to get back home when a man named Lawrence Singleton stopped and offered her a lift. He was about 50 years old at the time and he was a merchant seaman. Mary had run away from home as she lived in Las Vegas. Her parents had been going through a divorce and things like that, so she had just left as she had friends and family in the Bay Area, which is in California. So she went there for a while 
Uh, but now it was time for her to get back home. She had a boyfriend who was, let's just say, he was a complete arse and he wasn't treating her well and she was homesick. So it was time to leave him and get back home. When she was in Berkeley, Mary was hitchhiking, which, you know, we're in the 70s. So this was a very common thing. You know, it wasn't like nowadays when we're like, you should never do that. It's so unsafe and blah, 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 blah. Like this was very common. So Mary also had two other people behind her. She wasn't traveling with them at the time. They were just also hitchhiking when a van pulled up. The man driving the van says he only had room for one person. And that one person is Mary. The two people behind her tell her not to get in the van because the back is very clearly empty and he definitely has room for more than one person. So this is not safe. Mary was so tired, she was exhausted and she just wanted to get home. She'd been hitchhiking already, she'd been walking for ages and she just wasn't thinking clearly and, you know, she's 15 years old, she just wanted to get home to her family. So the guy was who was also driving, he was old looking, he had a beer belly and he did look more like a granddad rather than what I would guess you would kind of profile as like a really creepy murderer. I know that murderers don't have a profile but let's be all serious here. We're all, we've all got a, like a face in our head of what they could look like. So Mary gets in the van. Mary tells a man that she's trying to get back home to Las Vegas and he says that he is going to Reno, but that he will give her a lift to Los Angeles, which doesn't make any sense due to the routes. However, that's just from what I've read. I don't know, obviously, the the roots and things of California, etc., in America. Now, Mary falls asleep in the van, and when she wakes up, she looks at the signs on the road, and they've changed, and she realises that they're actually travelling east, when in fact they should be going south. They are out in Medessa in Patterson, which is in the Central Valley, so we're in California, where there's a lot of empty rural land, smaller roads. I would say small, but as in, like, it's not a big motorway and interstate it's still a two-lane road so it's not like a small country road as you would picture here back in the UK. Mary confronts him and he apologises and he says to her that he's an honest man and he made an honest mistake so he turns the van around. Then down the road he pulls the van over because he needs to go to the toilet. At this point Mary's getting nervous and she knows she's in a bad situation. It's now night time as well so it's dark Whilst he's out the van, Mary turn, uh, looks down and she sees that her shoes are untied. So if she was needing to get away and run, she needed to get them tied. She knows that she's much younger and fitter, so she knows that she could out outrun him if it was required. So Mary then gets out the van to tie her shoe. She bends over and he hits her in the head with a sledgehammer and she blacks out. Mary wakes up tied up in the back of the van naked. This man proceeds to rape Mary numerous times and all night and into the morning. This is a 15-year-old girl. Mary is obviously crying and begging him to set her free. And even when he had fallen asleep during the times, she couldn't get away because she was very securely tied up. In the morning, I don't know what the actual time was, but it's now bright outside. The man is finally done with her. He pulls Mary out of the van, unties her and says, you want to be set free? I'll set you free. At this point, 
the man picks up a hatchet out of his tool bag in the back of his van and he cuts off her left arm below the elbow. Mary starts to scream. She's freaking out and quite clearly she's going into shock. She grabs the man with her right arm and he takes a hatchet and he starts hacking off her right arm. At this point, Mary's kicking and screaming, and so it takes longer for her right arm to be hacked off. But he manages. Mary starts to fall backwards in disbelief, and when she looks up at the man, she can see he is flailing his arm about as her right hand is still gripping onto his arm, and he is trying to flick it off. So at this point, Mary realises both her arms have been chopped off. Mary goes limp. She's bleeding out, she's lightheaded, and she's laying on the ground. The man thinks that she's dying or has already died. And so he picks her up, takes her to the railing at the edge of the road and throws her off the 30 foot drop. On the way down, Mary breaks four ribs and the man drives away. When the police caught the man, who was later confirmed as Lauren Singleton, they believed that the reason he had thrown her off the edge was to cover up any facts or traces that could have been led back to him as a victim, you know, she'll be dead anyway. Well, let me just tell you right now, Caitlin. Mary Vincent survived. So this is, in fact, a survival story. That's mad, That's mad isn't it? Yeah. This whole ordeal, Mary has survived. So let's go back to Mary at the bottom of this mound. She has no arms below the elbow, four broken ribs, and has had the worst 24 hours you could possibly ever imagine. And she's also losing a hell of a lot of blood. So what is going on? In this instant, you would think, okay, this is it. I'm, you know, I'm dying. Well, no, not Mary. She said that she had a voice in her head telling her to get up and get help. If she died, then this man can keep going and doing what he did to many other people and she could not let this happen. With regards to the, the quotes or the wording that I'm using, this is actually from Mary's own words of what happened to her. So there was, um, or I say there was this programme, it still might be there in America called I Survived. And Mary's story is season four, episode one. So I couldn't really get the whole episode anywhere here, but they do have a version of it on YouTube for people in the UK if, if you wanna give it a listen. They also have many other survivors on there telling their stories and it's absolutely harrowing, but also in a way, I don't know if I can say empowering because it's them telling their stories and how they want and they're showing that these god awful things it can happen, but you can walk away from it and advocate for you know other people and to help stop these things happening. Um, but yeah, I don't know if it's on any streaming platform in this country possibly one that you have to pay for that I don't have but there are some on YouTube. Now with this voice in her head Mary stands up and she puts her stumps in the dirt. She does this to fill the cuts up with dirt to control the bleeding a bit and to get the blood flow you know to calm down. Now to even think of that is absolutely I don't even have a word to describe it because I could never. Now with this Mary proceeds to climb back up the 30 foot drop back to the road with no hands. Now we don't know how long this took however by the time she got back up to the road it was now dark so it would have taken a good few hours. 
Mary obviously has no idea where she is. The only light she has in her favour are the stars and the moon. If this was a cloudy night, she wouldn't have even had any light at all. In the distance, Mary can hear the noise of cars, so she decides to follow this to find help. After walking three miles, a car comes towards Mary, which has two men in it. She screams for help, however, they drive away. Now, Mary does state that she can understand why they did this, because clearly she looked like something out of a horror film. She was covered in blood, she was covered in mud, she had no hands, she was naked, you know, she was screaming for help. Like, I don't know, you can't really comment about those guys driving away, because you don't know what you would do in that situation. You know, I think if that happened to you and I, Caitlin, I don't know. If you, you just oh, don't like, know. I, I feel really, really terrible for her, but I would continue driving. Mm-hmm. You, you just never know. So after what felt like for ages, a second car passes and this one stops. This was the car of newlyweds on their honeymoon who had gotten lost. They put Mary into the back seat and reassured her that they would get her help. So they drove along the road and got to the first payphone. Because remember, we're in the 70s. It's not like they could just whap out a mobile and call for help. Um, and they got Mary help. Now, she was transported by air to the hospital. Mary thankfully gave such a bloody good description of the man to the police sketch artist that when the image was released on the TV, Lawrence's neighbour saw this and immediately reported him. And it wasn't like the neighbour didn't like him. She did and had known him for years. But thankfully, she called it in right away. The police then arrested Lawrence Singleton. And during his interrogation, he tells the police that Mary was, in fact, just a $10 whore. He was passed out in his van and that his pal, Larry, was the one that attacked her. There was also apparently other hookers in the van. Now, those are his words and not mine, because I would never use that word. Now, Mary testified against Lawrence in court with two prosthetic limbs because they had finally got them fitted. And whilst she walks out, when she's testified against him, she walks past him and he whispers to her, if it's the last thing I do, I'll finish the job. Now, in March 1979 in San Diego, um, a jury convicts him of kidnapping mayhem, attempted murder, foreseeable rape, sodomy and forced oral copulation. He then gets the maximum sentence of the time, which was, do you want to have a guess? The death penalty. 14 years. Yes. Sorry? Yes. Sorry? <laughs> 14 years in prison. No death penalty, no life. 14 years was this. That was the maximum sentence he could have gotten at this time in 1979. Now, the judge who passed the sentence, he did say, if I had the power, I would have sentenced him to prison for the rest of his natural life. So, you know, I guess the judge, he agrees with all of what we're thinking, but the law at the time, 14 years. After serving just eight years in prison, Lauren Singleton was paroled. This was then on the news every day. Now, a work incentive law was secretly actually approved at this time, whereby for every day you worked in prison, a day was taken off your sentence. Now, this was apparently to deal with overcrowding, etc., but it's complete nonsense, in my opinion, and should never have been put forward for people like Lawrence. I can understand the incentive, 
But when it comes to someone like him... Oh, I can totally understand if it's like a petty kind of drug crime and actually the person deserves to be out. So instead, it's like kind of, okay, let's kind of do rehabilitation and get people out. We speak about this all the time, but not for something like that, no. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. And so his release date was announced to be the 28th of April, just eight years and a few months after being in jail. And everyone was obviously fuming in the Bay Area. And everyone protested, including the mayor and all of the legal boards. um, They all sided with the public, which in turn stopped him from being released there. They then tried to release him into Tampa, Florida. And so the Guardian Angels in Tampa led protests to not allow this, which they won. And so the Guardian Angels, they were quite a big thing in the 80s, which was a group of people who took the law into their own hands. So a vigilante crew. However, years later, these did then kind of stop or die down because they got a bit about hand. You know, they were doing good. But I guess it's like everything. When you leave it to the public, some things can go a bit crazy. Now, also, if Florida doesn't take you, that is obviously saying something. I know I'm not from America, but Florida, sorry, you have a reputation. Now, they then tried to release him elsewhere in California, but again, the public and the politicians were not allowing this anywhere, including San Francisco and places like that. He was getting kicked out of, he wasn't able to enter anywhere. And it was loads and loads of people and loads of those places in California that he kept trying to get put. But say, for example, if it was in one place, they were like, okay, you're not going, then they obviously whispered to the next place he was going to to inform them so that they could then protest so everybody was in you know the same team here the governor though he finally said to put a trailer on the grounds of san quentin which is the state prison in california so that he can live there until his parole is over which he did for one year his parole was only one year and then he's free to go wherever the hell he wants which he did and he goes back to Florida. When in Florida, a car dealer even offered him $5,000 to leave the state and a homemade bomb was de- detonated close to where he lived. No one was hurt, but he also didn't leave. In 1997, a neighbour calls the police after atta- after seeing that his neighbour, or her neighbour, sorry, was attacking a woman in his home. When the police arrive, they find the dead body of 31-year-old mother of three, Roxanne Haynes. She was a sex worker, which is why she was there at the time. Roxanne was stabbed 12 times. When Lauren Singleton answered the door, his shirt was open and blood was all over his chest. And so it's not like he could have gotten away with this one. Mary Vincent, she goes to Tampa and goes to her trial at his sentencing, and she tells everyone, you know, the jury in the court, what he did to her. She tells them about the whole ordeal and how it's taken over her life. She was going to art school at the time when he got paroled, and that obviously completely derailed her and her recovery because he got released. In his sentencing, he denied chopping Mary Vincent's arms off, and then when also speaking about Roxanne, he said, I'm sorry about the death in this case. I'll have to carry it on my conscience for the rest of my life. Like, I'm sorry. You have no right to be like, oh, poor me. Anyway. I know, he's such an arsehole, isn't he? Yeah. 
Now, Vary Vincent, she won a 2.56 million civil judgment case against Lawrence. However, she couldn't collect this because he was unemployed, he was in poor health, and he only had $200 in savings. So Mary went on, she got married, she had two boys, and she set up the Mary Vincent Foundation, which was to help those who had been through traumatic crime. Now, she is getting on with her life. I believe she doesn't, obviously, she stays out of the public eye and things, but, you know, she has managed to build a life for herself, which is brilliant. As this was Florida, Lauren Singleton was sentenced to death by, obviously, the death penalty. He, unfortunately, though, died of cancer in 2001. And in the I Survived um, episode, Mary does state that, you know, it didn't give her any closure or peace of mind. It wasn't like a thing was just lifted off of her shoulders because because of this she was unable to get any answers from him as to why you know you can't get into his head you can't do anything like that so he practically kind of you know just got away with it it didn't give her a sense of relief but that is the story of Mary I think in a, oh, oh sorry. sorry I was gonna say I think in a way though sometimes people want answers but actually the answer is never gonna be what you want yeah no, I feel that. Or like you think it will maybe give you something, but in the end, it probably hasn't. So I think it's it's always going to be a lose-lose. But again, I guess you, you can never say unless you're in that position. Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I can stand here and be like, I actually wouldn't want answers. Blah, blah, blah. But if I was in that situation, I could feel totally different. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the absolutely mental story of Mary Vincent and that's what got me into true crime podcasts obviously I've loved true crime for ages but I mean podcast wise um I just I just can't get over it I just I've got no words I think like it really needs to be recognized the fact that she kept fighting and carrying on because like I think you must just like that is like prime example of fight or flight because it would have been just so easy for her to lie there and be like well that's that then yeah like I I would all be like, if that was me, I'd probably be dead about 15 hours before her, but you just, you know <laughs> you what fall I mean? over, Samantha, and you're like, that's it. Yeah. What time's up? <laughs> that's me, but I think it's, you know, something to be admired. Like, I just, yeah, can't even. That's that one. Yeah, definitely. Um, okay, if you want to take a wee five-minute breather, everybody, and go make a cup of tea, coffee, and I will give you my American story. So for my story, we are going over to Texas and I'm going to be telling you the story of Amber Hagerman, which I've actually noticed recently, like as I'd already started doing the research for this, that a couple of episodes I listened to, well, a main one in particular did this story a couple of weeks ago and I was like, damn it, because I was very impressed with myself for doing it. Um, But Samantha, do you have any idea who Amber Hagerman is? No, I've never heard of this one, um, but Perfect. I'm interested as well. So you will definitely it. have heard of her. Like I will put money on it. The, the minute really? I tell you who this girl is, you'll know. Um, and obviously we're a kind of UK podcast. So I'm kind of hoping some people don't all know, but if you do know, that's okay. I'm just going to give you my take on it. So as I said, our story takes place in Texas and it's in Arlington, Texas, and it is on Saturday, January the 16th, 1996. Now, Amber lived with her mum, Donna, and her five-year-old brother, Ricky. Um, She was nine at this time and she had a relationship with her dad, Richard, but Richard and Donna are divorced. Now, the day was a very normal day. Um, they had gone to the park. They'd went to see their grandparents. Remember, this is Texas, so January 16th. 
in Scotland, you're probably not going to leave the house. It's probably going to be minging. Whereas in Texas, I think it was still quite a nice day this day. Um, so about 3 p.m., Ricky and Amber go out to ride their bikes around the block because that's all they're allowed. So their mum says you can ride the bikes around a specific block. So they go off to do that while she sees their grandparents. However, there's an old Winn-Dixie. So, Samantha, I don't know if you know what a Winn-Dixie is. Um, I wasn't aware. No but... idea. Is it like okay. a wind... Sorry. <laughs> no, on you go. Tell me. Is it like one of those wind things that, you know, you can tell like where the wind is blowing? Like a wind turbine? Yeah. No, not a turbine. Like the thing that you'd have, it maybe have a cockerel on it and it'd be like, oh, the wind's coming from the east. Ah, uh-huh. no, it's a supermarket. Oh, I was close. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a supermarket, yeah. So it looks kind of, I don't really know like what kind of supermarket it is like it's quite a big supermarket and like when I had a look the headquarters are in Florida and it's got more than like 500 odd stores across certain states as it is so there's obviously one in um Texas obviously but it, it started in like the 1920s so I didn't know what it was either but it seems to be like a store I don't know if it's like our Tesco or Asda or I don't know if it's like an Aldi or a Lidl I don't know but it's a shop called Winn-Dixie and they're a chain so there's a this is a old Winn-Dixie so it's like an abandoned car park that they go and like loads of kids love it to like ride their bikes around there because there's obviously like ramps and it's like an old car park but that is out of the distance that Donna said they could go so they're like "Mm, should we go so they go Ricky and Amber both go and they ride their bikes around however Ricky gets a bit nervous that he's going to get aroused so he heads back but Amber's like I'm not done doing my laps on my bike so she stays and he goes home now when Ricky gets back to his grandparents his mum Donna straight up says like where's Amber and Ricky doesn't lie he's like oh she's at the Winn-Dixie car park and she's like right well can you go back and get her and tell her to come back here because I didn't give her permission to go there um Jimmy is the granddad and he's like oh that's a bit not great that Amber's there on her own so he jumps into his car which I think was a kind of truck car and drives to the car park now when Jimmy gets there he sees Amber's bike lying abandoned in the middle of the car park but he doesn't see Amber now he sees a policeman talking to someone who lived beside the Winn-Dixie so Jimmy goes over and the man said that he was in his back garden which looks onto the Winn-Dixie so even though this Winn-Dixie was an abandoned shop it wasn't like in the middle of nowhere like as you said Samantha was one of those like abandoned metal signs like there was like a a kind of laundry mat as they are in America there there was like different houses there were shops like that was an area that it wasn't completely abandoned so this man lives there and his back garden looks onto the Winn-Dixie and a black van pulled up a man jumped out and grabbed Amber off her bike and pulled her into the van Now, she was screaming and kicking, but he actually managed to get her in the driver's side of the van and drive off. Now, the man was driving a solid black van and it was like a single cab black van and it was in good shape. So police are aware. So any kind of black van in the area that day is kind of picked up. Now, Jimmy went home and told Donna, who was obviously distraught. It had been eight minutes since Ricky had left her to when Jimmy went out. So in eight minutes, that managed to happen. Now, the family act right away and put out missing people, like person posters, and begin searching. And the neighbourhood begins searching as well, which this links into a lot of the crimes we've spoken about, Samantha. Do you want to talk about the neighbourhood and either get really involved or they don't? They totally got involved. Like, they help the police with the ground search. Like, even when it, like, turns to night time, they don't then just go home. They all, like, go out in the dark and still help look for her. 
um, and local dairy and like radio stations came together and actually put together an award for £15,000 for like to find Amber. Um, now the neighbourhood as well, just going back to that, they kind of like made Donna and Richard meals and were just like really looking out for them. So the witness luckily could really describe the man. So there was a proper solid description of this man. So he was white or Hispanic. He was under six feet tall. He was in his late 20s or 30s. He was medium build and had dark hair. So police had done house to house in the area around the Winn-Dixie. And like, as I say, because it was businesses and homes, they went around all of them. But nobody had seen anything. Like, bear in mind, this was like the back of three on a normal day, like in the middle of the daylight, in the middle of like place where loads of people are so people aren't looking for bad things to happen do you know what I mean so police actually set up a hotline with over 50 officers working it to try and get info around Amber and every single tip was investigated so they I mean like every tip like a psychic could phone up and be like I've got a feeling this is what's happened and they would still investigate that tip as if like it was important as any other tip which I think is really really good now by the end of the first day Donna and Richard get together and do a police information like appeal for any information but as you can imagine press are all over the place like this is a really big case like a child has been snatched in the middle of the day. Now on January the 15th which is two days later police end the ground and air search as they actually have a horrible feeling that Amber's maybe not in Texas anymore. Now day four which so about four miles away a man was walking his dog and saw something down in a little creek and it was a young girl's body she was bruised and had a slit throat and um, the body was unfortunately naked and she was wearing a single sock now this girl's body was identified as amber now maintenance workers were at the creek hours before and it wasn't there so it only arrived kind of earlier that day but there had been heavy rain so it probably washed there which means unfortunately a lot of evidence was also washed away now the autopsy was done which i'll just give a kind of warning it's a bit graphic but the autopsy was done and she had been dead for two days meaning she'd been held with her kidnapper for two days as well she had been repeatedly sexually assaulted and beaten up now the communities are obviously stunned as i have just spoke about like how did this happen it was 3 p.m. It was the middle of the day. It wasn't pitch black. So how has this girl just been literally dragged off her bike and into a car? Like, I think when you hear about children going missing, it's always like, you know, a play park that's really busy and or it's like in the middle of the night, they're literally snatched from their house. I think the fact that she was just snatched in broad daylight is mental. Now, FBI analysis create a criminal profile. I love kind of method behind these like the criminal profiles I think it's so so interesting when they kind of decide what this person must be like so it's like they believe the person had connections to Arlington did they either live there did they have family there they thought he maybe already had a record maybe child crimes or sexual crimes they believe they likely lived alone and that the attack was caused by something stressful such as divorce or losing their job and they also believe it was opportunistic, which, of course, it wasn't planned. I think they were just driving past, saw Amber on her own in this car park and just thought, like, boom, I'm going to go for it. But I find that so interesting that they've kind of analysed all these different things about the crime. And that's what they've came up with. Do you know what I mean? Now, unfortunately, Amber's abductor to this day has never been found. And the case is cold and still unsolved. And that has obviously been what, a long time, nearly 30 years. And there's still no more information around that. So, Samantha, I told you you would know who Amber is. Do you know who she is yet? Um, no, I, I have never heard of this one. Honestly, okay. Like, I'm shocked. So this is why I tell you. A woman named Diane Simone, who is a mum from Fort Worth, watched this case unfold. So when it came out, like, 
Amber had been held for two days and like it was shocked that nobody had like seen or done anything. So when the police have done the house to house, right, how did nobody see anything? Like how did nobody hear anything and how was there no witnesses? How is this case being cold? Unless, Diane suggests, people are seeing things, they just don't know what they're seeing or looking for. So Diane calls into the Dallas-Fort Worth radio station with this idea. So if the media can share weather alerts on TV and radio for dangerous weather conditions, like, for example, like your weather app will ping up with an alert saying like, oh, like potential flooding or, you know, that happens on the radio. It'll come through being like there's been, you know, especially in America, like there's obviously a lot more dangerous weather conditions. So it pings up and it becomes an alert and it takes over all the TVs, all the radios back then. Why would they not do this for a missing child? So an alert that interrupts broadcast and it goes right to the people in the area immediately. So like if it was to happen in Edinburgh, it would go to the places in Edinburgh and say, this is the child that's missing. Now, police loved it and the community loved it. So this was created. And on October 1996, the Amber Plan was released across the USA, known as the Amber Alert. You with me now, Samantha? (gasps) Oh my word. So this stands for two things. Amber, as in Amber Hagerman, is the inspiration behind it. However, I'm going to do a kind of swerve here because alternative regional alerts are also like once in use. So like in Georgia, they use Levi's call, uh, Levi's call, sorry, in memory of Levi Frady. In Hawaii, it was Melee Amber. In um, Arkansas, it was Morgan Neck. So all these different children that have got missing in areas, they kind of use this instead. But it also stands for AMBER, America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. So back when it first started in 1996, a fax would be sent out to broadcasters the minute an abduction was confirmed, so they would send it out. So the community could also know what they were looking for. So the police would be like, okay, we've got a missing child, there's a description of the van, and that's a description of the van. That would then be broadcast all over Arlington. So it wasn't just the police that are looking for this van, the whole of Arlington are looking for this van. So let's kind of zoom into today. It isn't just TV and radio anymore. It's on digital board signs. They've got them on the signs above the motorways. They've got it on social media and they actually even have it now that a text is sent directly to your phone in the local area. So, do you know, Samantha, if we were in Edinburgh and we were on Princess Street, for example, and our child was abducted on Princess Street in America, that would we'd literally get a text being like, this child is missing, here's a description. So that is the Amber Alert. Um, now, is there a criteria to use the Amber Alert? There actually is. Um, so there's a guidance and there's kind of four criteria that has to be met before the Amber Alert is issued. So the four are, number one, law enforcement must confirm that an abduction has taken place. So they must confirm that this has been an actual abduction. It's not just a kind of missing child. It's not like someone's wandered off like, you know, out of that garden. It has to be a confirmed abduction. Two, the child must be at risk of serious injury or death. Now, number two isn't being used a lot because many parental abductions would trigger an amber, amber alert. However, if you're abducted by your parent, there's a very, it's not as likely you're going to be, like, harmed or killed you know what I mean it's like a lot more just being taken number three there must be sufficient descriptive information of the child captor or captor's vehicle to issue an alert so again they can't just put out a broadcast and say a four-year-old boy is missing okay whereas if they say you know a four-year-old blonde boy wearing a blue t-shirt with glasses has been taken by a red ford you know what you're looking for and the child must be under 17 years of age so 17 and older cannot be classed as an amber alert 
Now, obviously, as I mentioned to you, number two isn't being used so much because parental um, parental abduction, sorry. But in 2013, West Virginia passed Schuyler's Law, um, which is to eliminate number one as criterion for triggering an Amber Alert, uh, Amber Alert, sorry. So actually, law enforcement must confirm they've been abducted. That's been wiped in West Virginia and other places because of Schuyler, because actually, as I said there, a child could walk out the back garden. No, it's not been confirmed or abducted, but they could have been if they're not being found and most likely have been. Now, sorry, America, I'm kind of leaving you a wee bit. What about the UK? Because that's where we obviously are. Well, on the 1st of April 2007, the Amber Alert system became active in northwest England. So that was implemented across the rest of Britain and that all kind of took time. But it was released on May 25th, 2010, with the nation, nationwide launch of the Child Rescue Alert based on the Amber Alert system. So we don't call it the Amber Alert in the UK. We don't call it that. We kind of have our own system, which is like the Child Rescue Alert. Now, the first system of this kind was actually created in Sussex on the 14th of November 2002. And then it kind of more came about in Surrey, Hampshire. And by 2005, every local jurisdiction in England and Wales had its own form of alert system. Now, it was first used in the UK on October the 3rd, 2012. Here's a bit of trivia for everyone. Samantha, I'm going to ask you, but everyone, you can pause and take a minute. What was the first case it was used on? So it was obviously a missing child in either England or Wales. Samantha, who was it first used on, on October the 3rd, 2012? I'm going to get this so wrong. Okay. I'm going to, like, Shannon Matthews, but I think she was before that, so... Yeah. Okay, it was yeah. used on five-year-old April Jones, who went missing in Wales. Oh, so, yeah. yeah, if anyone got that right, we're happy to know Samantha did not get it right. Now, the United Kingdom actually also has four criterias for their child rescue alert. And that is the child is under 18 years old. There's reasonable belief that the child has been kidnapped or abducted. There's reason to believe that the child is in imminent danger of serious harm and death. And there is sufficient information available. So that's the exact same kind of thing. Um, so also in the UK, this is alerted in S it's via text, email, mobile app, website pop-ups, Twitter, Facebook, digital um, billboards. So like when you're driving along the big motorways in England, um, it does come up. Um, so I actually don't and cannot find anything about it in Scotland. So I don't know if we're maybe a bit behind in the game. But I can't really find any information about any alert like this being used in Scotland. But I think it's very important. And I think it's one of those where I've always known Amber Alerts to be a thing. So I, I get why it was so important. I get why this woman said it. Because Amber's case would have been so different if people knew what they were looking for. Because as you said, it was in the middle of broad daylight and this man was able to drive away. And he probably drove past loads of people that didn't know what they were looking for. Whereas if they'd actually known to just call in a guy driving a black truck that looked like that. I put money on it. She would have been found. Like, I can honestly say with full confidence, I think she would have been found. Samantha, what's your thoughts? That's crazy. Like, I, you never think of the origin of things. And I'm always like, oh, Amber Alert. Oh, it's because it's Amber, the colour Amber. Like, how stupid am I? Um, but wow. I thought that as well, though. I thought it was just a reason. I thought there was maybe red alerts. Yeah. Alerts. I just always thought it was that. Like, I don't, yeah. I think it's again one of those harrowing things where something good has come out of something evil. That that sounds so like yeah. religious of me, but you know what I mean. <laughs> like, mm. yeah, no, absolutely, though, it is. 
um it's awful as well and the thing is as well like if I was with my brother I left him well he left me all the time like you know what I mean yeah but you would think if I just didn't leave them something could have it would have been fine but obviously you can never think of that but it's awful absolutely crazy yeah no totally though there's no way that like Ricky doesn't blame himself Mm -hmm. there is no no way um and I think Ricky would be similar ages to us he'd be a year older than me no (laughs) no he wouldn't it'd be six years older than me so (laughs) yeah he's probably still holding that to this day you know yeah but then also at the end of the day it could have been both of them you know Mm -hmm. you don't know what that person was in the van and could have been them both gone and again it happened in broad daylight but something like the Amber Alert was created from that and you know we could only be grateful to that woman's idea but you know come on Scotland yeah <laughs> we don't have something like that we don't have something like yeah. I was like doubting myself being like can I not find it but I couldn't find anything about Scotland at all so I really don't get that no, um we... no sorry go. no I was just gonna say we try and up England on other things and bring things in too early so why can't we just but have not this? the safety <laughs> of children uh-huh. we've not done well enough Oh, but thank you for joining us on our trip to Edinburgh. We'll be back with the UK next week. Our trip to Edinburgh? You mean our trip to America? Did I not say America? <laughs> no. <you> were... <laughs> I was really like, oh, there we go. Done. Sorry. Yeah. yeah Happy Fourth of July. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs>